Hi, my name is Tzemach, and my guest today again is uh, Sholem Aleichem. And today we're going to speak about HR department of Menachem Mendelsniers, uh, meaning that, oh, you know, when I spoke to you last time, uh, you said something that uh, Ramash wanted to lose his European and Russian anchor. And I've been thinking about this for a while. And uh, there are many paths that we can go from this statement, sort of exploring different aspects of history. But I think one which I particularly would like to touch upon is um, uh, the administration of Menachem Mendelssohn, the second tier people, how was the hiring and how was the firing, or more specifically, why it seemed sometimes, and it still maybe is the case, that the administration or people, a second, a third, fourth, et cetera, tier after Menachem Mendel Schneerson, which was the CEO of this corporation, often seemed incompetent. And uh, you told me something which I think would also would like to touch upon is that is, uh, there might be not only um, a certain barrier between Ramash and starting with the second tier people, but they might be something of a dislike of quote unquote Geja and maybe maybe even bad blood between Geja and Ramash. So let's let's explore this today. Okay. Um, I think we need to go back to Halabavich was set up in 1940. And I think in 1940, there was the office of the Rebbe. Around him were Gaboyim, which means people who are responsible for appointments, for um, secretarial duties, uh, mail. And there was the yeshiva, and there were administrators of the yeshiva. And thirdly, there was some form of <clears throat> publishing, and that could be divided into A and B, publishing of um, educational materials, and B, publishing of uh, Hasidic uh, texts and discourses. So given all of that, it was a fairly small movement with a fairly small bureaucracy. I mean, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Joseph Eichnerson, had several people working as secretaries. Um, Rabbi Simpson, I don't even believe he was full-time, and um, uh, Reb Chaim Lieberman was some form of a secretary, private secretary. Um, and then the United Lubavitcher Yeshiva was basically run by his son-in-law, Rabbi Gurari, and Gurari appointed people under him. The educational and publication department of Lubavitcher, and I wouldn't even call it educational, it's the publications department, was run by Rabbi Menachem Schneerson, uh, and he was assisted by Rabbi Chadikov and Dr. Mendel, among others. I mean, there were 
there were some other Americans who were, um, you know, paid paid hired hands to help. After all, none of these people I just mentioned knew English. And if Lubavitch was going to have any impact on the educational system in the United States, some of these materials had to be issued in English. So there were English-speaking um, people who were involved, Gershon Kranzler. Um, there were others uh, who I never even heard of just through the course of my life. I uh, bumped into people who would tell me that uh, in the 1940s, they worked for Merkrezl and Yane Finuch. Um, when the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Nachem Schneerson, assumed power, he basically superimposed the educational and publication department upon the office of Rebbe. So since he was the head of the, that department, he became Rebbe, and the people who worked in that department, namely Khadikov and Mendel, became his secretaries uh, and continued their educational work. Uh, the United Lubavitcher Yeshiva, um, after much wrangling between Gurari and the Rebbe, um, you know, was sort of still the baby of Rabbi Gurari. And so now um, there are, you know, there are two, uh, two arms of Lubavitch, the educational publication department, which was exactly the same as the office of the Rebbe and the yeshiva. And, you know, as far as I'm aware, this went on for years. I mean, as was necessary, the Rebbe added people to his so-called secretariat. The head of his secretariat was Khadikov, who was the number two man of the publication department. Mendel was still involved, although again, basically he was still working on publications and people were added to it. Uh, Groner, label Groner was added as a uh, appointments secretary. Later on in the late 50s, Krinsky was added as a driver, as a driver to the Rebbe. And whether he was actually ever appointed as secretariat is, you know, in dispute. And uh, Benjamin Klein was a failed shliach in Australia. And in order to, uh, I don't know if the right word is placate, but in order to offer a uh, some sort of, uh, uh, I don't know what the right word is, to Klein, he was appointed also to the secretariat. So the secretariat consisted of at least those four people, and it may also have had Rabbi Rothstein worked in the secretariat. I'm not sure that all these people, you know, they they all doubled. For example, Khadikov continued in the publications department, and you know, and Mendel certainly continued in publications and did a large number of translations. Like he translated a good part of the Tanya. Um, Groner may have been full time, although he too was involved. So he knew in English. There was one who knew English. 
Groner, yeah, but he too was. No, I mean, I mean, Dell, you because I originally said, knew, yeah, yeah, right, and he was involved in translations. I mean, no, he couldn't have done the translation of Tanya before he went to sleep. I mean, it had to have been done, uh, you know, in business hours, and and, and he also wrote letters for the Rebbe in English, and um, at some point, Simpson was added, the younger Simpson, Shalom Menachem Mendel. And and it seems that Simpson's role was literally as a secretary. He seemed to be in charge of uh, filing, of um, you know, filing the correspondence back and forth. But if you note that at that time the Rebbe was getting busy, there are a lot of American Jews, including a lot of modern Orthodox Jews were writing to the Rebbe, and he probably did a pretty decent correspondence and uh, appointments because at that point he was highly regarded as a um, Rebbe, a Hasidic Rebbe, who who was also, so to speak, modern. And so many, many people, um, you know, corresponded with him. He was, and, and he literally was what they claimed to be. He wasn't involved in politics. Um, Lubavitch didn't take stands on issues in those days, at least not in my memory. And so uh, I imagine that Groner was busy, and I imagine Kharkov was sort of busy. So the Secretariat was doing what they do. Uh, the United Lubavitch Yeshiva under Gerari was doing what he did. And there really were no other responsibilities. I mean, correct me if you sense that there were other responsibilities in the movement at that point. Well, okay. I don't know. Okay. I, I don't claim that I may be missing something. I don't think I am. Um, come the late 1960s and uh, Black liberation, the war in Vietnam, um, and um, the Six-Day War, and suddenly, you know, we had, in, it wasn't, didn't happen overnight, but we suddenly by, I get, I would use the date 1980s, early 1980s, we, we, we suddenly had a new, a new uh, mahus, a new institution called the Chabad House. Um, I don't know where the first Chabad House was. I mean, of course, Lubavitchers will deny, but it certainly uh, probably originated in California, and it was probably based on Shlomo Karbach's House of Love and Prayer. Um, but but they know, but they but they say uh, uh, they say there were prototypes of this even time of riots. Uh, where? I don't know, like Worcester, Fogelman okay. and Worcester. Um, Okay, I don't believe there were. I don't believe there were any prototypes. They may claim that the Lubavitcher day schools were Chabad houses, but that's just not true. I mean, Lubavitcher day schools are educational institutions, K through eight. They weren't drop-in centers. They weren't counseling centers. They weren't outreach centers. They're K to eight schools um, that provided Hebrew and English education. and those were, if anyone um, had any sort of influence over them, that was uh, Garari's baby. 
Um, but suddenly in the late 70s and early 80s, you had the appearance of Chabad houses, uh, perhaps on campuses in California, and they took off uh, like a forest fire. Um, within probably the, by, by the Lubavitcher Rebbe's uh, illness in uh, 1992, there probably were a good number of Chabad houses across the United States. I don't know how many. Um, I've never bothered reading the um, self-serving propaganda because that's whatever it is, it's not accurate. Uh, but there were Chabad houses. Now, those Chabad houses, um, it's unclear who was running them. Um, to this day, I have no idea what the flow chart of Chabad houses were. Um, certainly, Gerari was not running them. Um, so they were probably being run from the secretariat. And that's when a gentle, gentleman by the name of Yehuda Krinsky, who spoke English and had some administrative talent and was quite uh, savvy at PR, stepped in, stepped in. I mean, he had been involved in PR earlier with uh, Irv Spiegel of the New York Times, uh, Herbert Wiener, Nine and a Half Mystics, et cetera, et cetera. And I think Krinsky um, stepped in. Now, whether Krinsky, in fact, was the CEO of Chabad Houses, that's highly doubtful. Um, and the same, Avram Shemtov may have thought of himself as some sort of CEO, but I don't know under what rubric he 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 uh, got that power. It's on it's on you know certainly what he calls himself now chairman of Agudas Chassidic Chabad. Um, Agudas Chassidic Chabad, in de facto, I'm not talking about de jure, but de facto Agudas Chassidic Chabad did not exist then. It was on hold because Agudas Chassidic Chabad was just a Hever Kedisha of Lubavitch. The Rebbe had replaced Agudas Chassidic Chabad with something called Syria Agudas Chabad. In the, in the Lubavitch abbreviation uh, dictionary, it was called Tzach. Um, now, Tzach, as far as I, I understood it, didn't seem to have any independent existence. Um, it, it, you know, to say that anyone ran it is, is like a, uh, to say that someone runs, I don't know, um, you know, someone runs, you know, um, gangs in New York. I don't, I'm not saying they were a gang. But, you know, Tzach was an organization that held conventions every year. Uh, and, uh, you know, once or twice a year uh, on, on Halamoid would send out people uh, in the provincial communities um, to uh, give people some what they called chizuk. Um And it was run by someone like David Roskin. And at some point uh, in the 1980s, I think the Rebbe gave uh, a gentleman by the name of... Uh, um, Butman, Shmuel Menachem Mendel Butman, um, the job as chairman of Tzach. Now that clearly was not an important job. It was a figurehead job. So going back to what I said, it was unclear. Did Tzach 
run these Chabad houses? Were the Chabad houses responsible to Butman, or were they responsible to the Secretariat? And that was never clear. And to this day, there are Chabad houses in Long Island and Westchester that are responsible to uh, Butman. I don't know exactly what Butman is doing these days. There are Chabad houses that accept the authority of Krinsky, and that's the majority of them. And there are Chabad houses that um, seem to be run, and uh, you know, uh, I, I don't tell. I know the viewers or the listeners out there, you know, have no way of communicating, but um, they're, they're Chabad houses that seem to be under the authority of um, what an organization run by the late Jacob J. Heft called the Committee for the Furtherance of Judaism, which is another shill. Uh, Lubavitch, um, you know, they say, I think Douglas MacArthur, a great American general, said that all generals never die. And you can say that about Jewish organizations. Jewish organizations never die, and certainly Chabad organizations never die. They're always kept in the bay, you know, they're kept in the refrigerator and taken out, like the Rebbe took out a good Chabad when he was fighting Barry Garari. He took it out of the freezer and uh, resuscitated it. And, and the same, the Committee for the Furtherance of Judaism of a for the furtherance of Jewish education is, is basically just a fundraising organization. Um, you know, I hope the Hecht family doesn't get angry at me, but I, I don't think they do very much. I mean, they may um, just perfunctory distribute some toys to Jewish children on Hanukkah time just to show their donors that they do something. But the um, release time, which is what they were founded for, uh, release time public schools as far as I'm aware, it doesn't really exist anymore. And uh, so it, today it's just an organization which is chiefly, and you know, I want everyone to remember the word chiefly, um, uh, fundraising organization. It's not the only Jewish organization that's chiefly uh, fundraising. So the question is, um, who, who, was, who ran the Chabad houses? Um, you know, and the Chabad houses by uh, the mid 1990s were numbered in the hundreds. And, um, and and many Chabad houses um, got into trouble, um, you know, both in terms of the shluchim themselves. Uh, mostly, they got into trouble with their fundraising, uh, you know, because they they were fundraising, and in many instances, uh, they were fundraising among people who are the elderly and the infirm and people. The children of these people uh, had uh, tainus, I don't know how you would translate that into English, had complaints against Chabad for taking advantage of their parents and uh, the older generation, for convincing them to leave the money to them rather than to the family. And this happens in every organization. It happened in Yeshiva University. It happened in, uh, in any Yeshiva. This is a part of the game. Um, now, but and the Chabad houses had problems in terms internal problems. I mean, uh, uh, many Chabad houses uh, certainly dealt with um, young men and women who were mentally unstable. Suicide was not an uncommon phenomena in these Chabad houses. Um, other similar things, and maybe not as radical as suicide, certainly plagued Chabad houses. 
and um, you know who are who are relatives of of so-called victims? Who are they to complain uh, for lack of action or lack of transparency? There really was no uh, is that the right term? I'm not a business executive flowchart. There was no um, scheme of authority. Um, let's say let's just call a shlia. Rabbi uh, Rabbi Klimovitsky or Rabbi Nevelover or Rabbi Moskover. Um, you know who who was above Rabbi Moskover? Who was who was Rabbi Leningrader's uh, superior? And and it didn't seem to be clear. I mean, I myself met numerous people who had ties against the Lubavitcher Rebbe for not taking sanctions against certain shluchim for their activities and just. For the record, you know, uh, a few of these people who were complaining that I met were uh, important people, and and I defended the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I said the Lubavitcher Rebbe can't stick his finger into every Chabad house's activities. And, uh, you know, there was a gentleman who wrote a piece in the New York Times criticizing the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and I met him for lunch one day, just serendipitously, not... Uh, and he he went on a rage against a certain Chabad Shalia. And, you know, I defended the Rebbe. Um, okay, there is a defense for the Rebbe. But on the other hand, Barry Gurari, you know, the famous Barry Gurari, I think all roads lead to Damascus or they lead to Barry Gurari. I'm not sure which one they lead to. Um, but Barry Gurari, one of his uh, manifestos, if we can call it that, wrote that Chabad is administered by a group of middle-level managers. So now after all my uh, draining the cup for you for the last 10 minutes, and I'm happy you're, you're beard with me, um, I think that was a major problem, that the Rebbe kept the bureaucracy at the same level that it was in 1951. He didn't change it. The fact that in 1951, the Rebbe ran an office and the Rebbe ran a publishing company, uh, whatever, it wasn't a for-profit, and that Gerari ran a yeshiva, that was the same people who worked for the Rebbe in 1990. It didn't, the secretariat did not expand. There were a lot of schleppers. Uh, I don't mean this derogatorily, but there were Schlepper self-proclaimed secretaries who weren't paid, who who helped deliver the mail, who helped, uh, you know, whatever. You know, I'm not going to name names. There were such people, and they weren't bad people. They meant well. They were Hasidim. And, but they weren't delegated any responsibility in the least. So the Rebbe kept the bureaucracy with Rabbi Gurari said, if I may call him Rabbi, he had smicha, just like any Lubavitcher has smicha, uh, you know, maybe more, maybe a better smicha. Um, Rabbi Gurari, um, and he was on the he was on the mark. We were dealing with a middle level bureaucracy, no high level managers. As Rabbi Chadikov got older, you know, which is fine. Right? Um, no one replaced Rabbi Chadikov. No one assumed Rabbi Chadikov's duties. I mean, Groner may have assumed some of them just by plain inertia. Uh, but no one was delegated such authorities by the chairman of the Merkel Slimyoni Sina, who was none other than Rabbi Menachem Schneerson. And the same was Mendel certainly was out of the picture by 
the late 80s. And, and there were no new, there were no, nothing new in Mercos Leonifino. The same people, there may have been helpers who translated, who edited, but there were no people in charge. Gerari was absolutely right. This whole massive movement of Chabad was run by a bunch of middle level managers with no authority at all, except for Rabbi Menachem Schneerson. And, you know, so there were three people in Lubavitch who had some authority. The Rebbe, he had a lot of authority. Um, Rabbi Kharikov, as much as many Lubavitchers had disdain for him, and yes, I'll say that again, uh, many Lubavitchers did not have kind words for Rabbi Kharikov, but they had to deal with him because the Rebbe liked him and he was the Rebbe's friend. And the third person was Rabbi Gurari, as much as, again, Lubavitcher did not care for Rabbi Gurari. Um, you know, he was a previous Rebbe's son-in-law. So as Khodakov was not replaced and Rabbi Gurari was not replaced, when Rabbi Gurari died, uh, he was not replaced. Um, the Rebbe even gave a sikha that Rabbi Gurari is more alive than, than anything. That's all nice and well, except that at the same time, we had um, demonstrations by Lubavitcher Yeshiva Bacharim uh, in, in Eastern Parkway that they weren't getting their meals, that their dorm conditions were deplorable. Uh, this was all due to either the severe illness or the absence of Rabbi Gurari. Uh, whoever it was that supposedly um, was replacing Rabbi Gurari or acting uh, instead of Rabbi Gurari, were not doing their job uh, or were pocketing the money, uh, that the, the budgetary money. You know, I'm not accusing anyone of anything, but uh, some, someplace along the line, something didn't operate because Bachram were demonstrating. There were demonstrations in Crown Heights on Eastern Parkway that Bachram weren't getting food and their dorm conditions were deplorable. Uh, so the Rebbe may have been, it may have been nice, Api Hasidus and Api Kabola, to say that, uh, you know, that Gerari was more alive, you know, than ever, Yisir Midechayohan, that he was uh, more alive, you know, than ever. But, you know, it didn't translate into reality in Lamata Mesor Tfokhin, as the Lubavitchers like to say. Um, and, and by the way, I, I can't resist but saying this, that that's the same thing about being the Rebbe. That yeah, in Alpichasidus, maybe the Rebbe is more alive than ever because he's not limited by his body and his soul could be the whole world. But again, you know, translating into reality, uh, do we have anyone to ask a real question to? Um, is there anyone running the movement? Is there anyone uh, offering uh, advice? Even if I may sometimes say that sometimes that advice as I said in the last uh, uh, interview, was, was in my opinion, not exactly true. Uh, but nevertheless, I mean, the Rebbe did, uh, you know, did, um, uh, he, he offered some certain solid advice uh, in certain areas, but uh, being a proud Jew, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that, that, that certainly, while you're, when one is not alive, that sort of uh, engagement it, it doesn't, doesn't exist. Uh, so, Gurari wasn't alive, Kharakov wasn't alive, so now the movement 
uh, was managed by, I don't know, I mean, the yeshiva supposedly was run by David Raskin at some point when they did bring in a uh, person who seemed to be capable, Rabbi Gershon Schusterman from Oakland, I believe he's from Oakland. Um, he was hounded out by opponents who feared him. They, they feared that uh, a person like Rabbi Schusterman uh, would, would act as a um, lightning rod against um, the people in the secretariat who, who thought of themselves as the Rebbe's um, successors, you know. Um, so um, Schusterman, Schusterman was, was attacked by both the New York middle managers and a California middle manager who was a Kunin. Okay. I mean, uh, that, I, that just, just there, it tells you that he's a, a person of quality just based on the people who attacked him. My little interaction with him is agrees with you. My my little interaction with Rabbi Schusterman, it's not a lot, but I'm on the same page with you about that. Um, so so so, so um, listen, listen, just a sec. Let me let me see. So on one hand, the Chabad they sort of pride themselves that they operate independently as without any organization chart, and they act quote unquote as as, as those startups which have their own uh, in-home areas of operation, which is a different subject, is a, is a hedge looking, which is a whole different, uh, uh, diff different part. But uh, on the other hand, you have essentially organization of a size that operated in 1950, continuing operate today, sometimes even with the same people. Right. Exactly. You know, that's my point. That um, Chabad is run but in the same manner, uh, except that today Chabad is a huge international organization. And um, unless Lubavitch is willing to say that Shabad of, of New Jersey doesn't have the same beliefs of Chabad in Russia and Chabad in France doesn't have the same beliefs as Chabad in Israel. Now, if they said that, that's fine. I mean, I'm willing to buy into that, that all these Chabads are independent, but they're not only organizationally independent, perhaps they have different theological beliefs as well. Um, but they're not willing to say that. Uh, supposedly, Chabad all over the world is the same, um, and you know, and I'm not going to comment on that because I don't know. But let, let's take a situation that's going on right now, and you know, I don't claim to be on top of it uh, because I have my own take on the war in Russia with Ukraine. Uh, <clears throat> you know, it's a take that, in my opinion, is based on. Uh, Jewish history, and uh, it doesn't matter whether people agree with me or not. That's my take on it, you know, but, um, and that's not what I'm going to talk about. I'm not interested in talking about what I believe in. But clearly, Chabad in Russia has taken a position supporting a tyrant who's an aggressor, uh, Mr. Putin, or whatever his name is. Um, now, 
does Krinsky, Dukrinsky and Shemtov and Kotlarsky and the rest of the board, whoever they are, and I'm not pulling at my own beard, but the rest of the board of Chabad, do, do they um, agree with that? I mean, does Krinsky agree uh, with uh, uh, the chief rabbi of Russia, the so-called chief rabbi of Russia, uh, with his position on the war? Um, who knows? You know, now, if you're going to say that each Chabad is autonomous, fine, you know, then they're also autonomous theologically. Then there's really nothing to stop, let's say, Chabad of Great Britain to announce that they want a Rebbe, that they want a, 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 a Lubavitcher Rebbe. You know, um, so. Other Rebbe. Let's right. go. I mean, Let's uh, go, Great Britain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when a Chabad in the Ukraine seems to be falling apart as we speak. I mean, uh, uh, the CoLive and other Chabad um, websites seem to be talking about Chabad Shluchim, whose Shlichus is over, and they need support, uh, financial support. Of course, there's no other support, certainly not in the world of Chabad. Um, so um, it seems to be that Chabad in the Ukraine seems to be on the verge of collapse. I mean, of course, they're going to come out with the PR and say, wow, what are you talking about? But it, it just seems that there's certain, a certain amount of collapse seems to be going on there. Um, but let, let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question. You, you, you sort of went into direction of Shlichus, which I wasn't planning to go in that direction. I'm, I'm more interested to seek to understand the personality of the Rebbe. So the two explanations to what's gone on. On one hand, you can say that he just left things as they were in 1950s. It didn't do any kind of movement, never put uh, a Rosh Hashiva in charge of organization that he had certain preference in, never, never uh, tutored and groomed a person who would become a leader, not just Chabad leader, but they say leader of uh, maybe Shlichus organization, maybe something else. So he was like passive. Things as they were, you know, 1950s, couple of uh, Maskirim, couple of secretaries added, couple of secretaries subtracted. No, very passive, no interference. But they could, they could be other uh, sort of historical examples, which uh, say that maybe he felt uncomfortable with competent people. Maybe it wasn't just let things as they were. Maybe he didn't want, quote unquote, any kind of a centers of real power in Chabad. And by real power, I mean, yeah, the, the centers of financial power, but there were no any and not even now any centers of spiritual power, even though the organization is so distributed, there's not a, a single person who has uh, well, spiritual spiritual value. They they bunch of stand up comedians like Shai Taub, Simpson who, Brothers. They they just they stand the pistis what they call in Israel. They're not you know uh, they, they do stand up. They, who was the first person you mentioned? Shai Taub. Okay, I don't know who he is. I see his okay. name. Also, you know, the, guy, the guy who used to be known, uh, whatever. It doesn't okay. matter. Um, 
Okay, it doesn't matter. Because- yeah, but but you know all those guys that appear regularly in 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 the Chabad websites. I wouldn't even call those right, publications. Right. Those rag yellow rags of Chabad. Right. So so you know, I've always wondered. I've always wondered if if Rabbi Beragrari, also known as Rishon Beragrari, also known as Barry Gerari, if Rabbi Gerari had not left Lubavitch and stupidly enough announced that he was a soldier of the Rebbe, um, would the Rebbe have given him any responsibility? I, I say no. I say the Rebbe would have, uh, you know, um, given him the same treatment he gave to um, Gurari, senior. I mean, uh, he would have wanted uh, young Gurari to worship him and to sit there at the Fabrengen and, uh, and shut uh, up. dream. Yeah. I don't think he would have given uh, Rabbi Schoenberg Gurari any responsibility at all. I mean, uh, he would have found some sort of niche for him, uh, but, you know, it would have been a powerless, uh, he would have told him probably to assist his father in running the Lubavitcher Yeshiva, which is, a you know, a, a, a spiritually meaningless, um, in my opinion, meaningless uh, move since the Rebbe created all a Torah to bypass that. But, um, you know, in the early years, Lubavitch was a small movement. It was a small movement. I don't know how many families there were in Crown Heights. Let's say there were 200 families in 1960. I don't think there were more. Um, so I don't know if the Rebbe really needed assistance in running Lubavitch in those years. Um, and there were but, other but Jews. Listen, the, the above mentioned yeshivas that you mentioned, you know, with all due respect to David Ruskin, but you know, I happen to see him in action a little bit. It's not it's not a person that's capable of running a yeshiva for, for various not, reasons. Uh, you know what? I, anything I say is not to be meant either positive or negative. So yeah, but I'm, I'd, I'm I'll being, do negativity. I'll do the negativity. Okay. I have no problem with it. Okay, but uh, what what I'm saying is that my my only recollection of Lubavitch when I was there, uh, the level of competent uh, incompetence, and it's always uh, was like why you see you see this person who people adore and he's a he's the greatest chemist he's the greatest physicist he's the greatest writer he's the greatest artist all of that. But can he manage Kron Heights? Can he manage his own yeshivas? And the answer for me when I was there was always no. So I, 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 I am su- I'm surprised. I'm surprised by that. I alluded to this uh, last time or the time prior to that uh, in discussing the Crown Heights riots and the murder of Yankel Rosenbaum. Um, this happened in Crown Heights. And there was a riot. I'm sorry to, uh, I have to tell the Lubavitchers there was a riot in Crown Heights, a serious riot, and we can call it the pogrom. And and there was a murder of Yankel Rosenbaum. Uh, you know, whether it was the um, negligence of the hospital or whatever, it doesn't take away from the fact that Yankel Rosenbaum was murdered. Um, the Rebbe was nowhere to be seen. 
He was nowhere to be heard. Yeah, but for uh, obvious reasons, for because he was Nagea Bedover. I know, but still, he's supposed to be a man who's close to a messianic figure. He's talking about Messiros Nefesh of his grand, of his father-in-law. His father-in-law had much more serious situations where allegedly his father-in-law did show Messiros Nefesh. His father-in-law was arrested by the communists. Whatever we, you know, we, you know, uh, if there are doubts whether he was sentenced to death or whether he wasn't, but he was arrested by the communist authorities. And he was in danger of long-term imprisonment, and he didn't care. And he kept yeshivas open, and he kept chadarim open. He he was a resistor, and 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 you know I have read a little about this. I'm not a complete I'm a arts about this. I would have to say, and Lubavitchers get out there with a big smile. The Rebbe, the Rayats resisted communism better than the Ahabdil Elif Abdullah's the Russian Orthodox Church did. The Rayats had more resistance to the Russian or to, to the communism than the Russian Orthodox Church. I just finished reading the biography of the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church and his passivity and the passivity of many, you know, metropolitans and bishops is unbelievable. I'm not saying they didn't resist some of them, but there were a tremendous passivity on the part of a good deal of the hierarchy of, of the Russian Orthodox Church. On the other hand, Lahavdil, the Rayats did resist. Now here's the Rebbe in the United you know, you know, States. You know the difference? You know the difference? Because Rayats as Jews in Russia, they perceive themselves not as part of the power infrastructure of the country. And now uh, something happened. So therefore, when, when we were Jews in Russia, we saw themselves as a quote unquote counterculture. No matter if you observe or not, no. you're not part of the official power structure of the country, which, which is not the case now. Now Chabad is part of the official oligarch here, uh, in, in specifically in Russia, but not just in Russia. It's, it serves too. oligarchy, which is a global oligarchy all over the world. That's the I state know, client. What, the Pshuteyam Pshute um, a simple Yidden, who are not just uh, Balagolis, but also some of them very educated, middle, uh, what, middle class, what, 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 upper middle class, lower middle class. They're not, they're not all you know, Chabad clients. I hear, but let's talk about the Rebbe himself. We're talking about the Nazi of the sixth generation who put himself in danger, uh, you know, and we're talking about the Nazi of the seventh generation. When he finally had the opportunity, he had the opportunity with the Yankel Rosenbaum pogroms to come out and show what he was made of. And he what he was made of is disappearing. He had the ability to disappear behind the Venetian blinds of his office. Instead of coming out and storming, as he would say, you know, he was nowhere to be seen, nowhere to be seen, nowhere to be heard. He left his people in Crown Heights leaderless for several days, if not a week, when they demanded a leader, when circumstances demanded a leader. And what was the worst that could have happened to Rabbi Schneerson? Absolutely. Uh, you know, with, with all due respect, he, he left his movement leaderless for much more than three weeks. 
I know, but he needed at that time they needed a leader. There was a it was an acute situation which demanded leadership. That's what leadership Monsieur that's what Monsieur Nefesh is you know, you read these articles and I remember reading an article in this magazine that the scientists put out in uh what is it called Bob something or it's a glossy magazine. It's quite a good magazine. It was put out in Israel, like ten issues came out. Um um, by scientists, it was a Chabad-oriented, and there was an article there which said not only about about Mesiras Nefesh, but it talked about Mesiras Nefesh, but pale mamish mamish, and and you know, in those days in Crown Heights, we needed the Crown Heights community needed Mesiras Nefesh, but poel mamish mamish mamish. It needed a leader, and there was no leader. And I'm just not going to. And then the, the the management that was in place in in Crown Heights was once again um, this what Barry Garari called middle level managers. One of them was in no condition to take a leadership role because he drove the lead car in the motorcade, and I don't blame him. He couldn't go out, and nowhere did it say that. This this particular person was a leader. He was a uh, he was a pakiade. I don't know what do they call it in Russia? Uh, uh, a bureaucrat. A bureaucrat. Uh, this is international word. But there's a Yiddish word, a bureaucrat. Uh, uh, I forgot. You know what my parents would call it. Uh, you know, a nachalnik. Nachalnik. That's it. Oh boy. They were nachalnikas, but they weren't leaders. I mean, um, so, you know, and the community was leaders. I remember getting a call, you know, and I don't care, you know, if I'm going to be identified, who knows, who cares. You know, um, I remember getting a call from the Agudas Israel of America. You know, I'm not an Aguda member. Uh, I'm not even sympathy with many of the Agudas positions. But, you know, I was friendly with many of the leadership team in the Aguda. And I got a call from the leadership team while the pogroms were going on the second day. And uh, the person asked me, you know, uh, he asked me, um, Shalom Aleichem, he said, who do I call in Crown Heights? We, the Aguda, want to offer support for, for Chabad. We, we, want to, we want to see what we can do. I mean, both in terms of perhaps money, in terms of um, PR, whatever. And I, I remember thinking, and I said to the guy, I said, what do I know? I said, there's no one in charge. It's been it's been 40 years of of one person rule, and that one person has disappeared. I mean, who's in charge? I don't know. Uh, so um, I don't know. You know, Rabbi Butnin uh, uh, attempted to take charge, but you know, I'm not going to call him what what he you know. Rabbi Butnin is as much as leader as I am. I mean, I'm a leader. I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm a uh, from the peanut gallery, you know. I can okay, so, sp speaking of peanut gallery, let, let me say something from peanut gallery. You know, I, I'm more interested in this subject. Yeah. Was there really um, discomfort with people of substance? And more importantly, was there really discomfort with original Chabad, meaning the, the Russian Chabad? Well, you can you you can see you know the the best answer to your question is the real the realia 
The, the, you know, was there, you know, there were people of substance in Chabad, even Americans, there were Americans who were people of substance. I mean, I, I will name someone like Zalman Posner. Uh, I don't know if he's still with us. I hope he is. I may have asked him. Um, uh, he comes to mind. There were others who, who I may not know. You know, I'm claiming I know everyone in the movement. Um, these people were kept out um, of the power circle. Um, and secondly of all, I do believe you're right. I mean, uh, I've said this for years, that the Rebbe was uncomfortable with Geja people. Now, when I mean Geja, I don't mean a person who's fourth generation American, whose great grandfather studied in Shedarin. That's not what I mean. I mean by someone who actually came from Russia. Someone who was a Russian who came here in 1950s, maybe via Israel, maybe via France, whatever. Um, none of those people seem to ever be, if I can use the word, Ola Ligadula, who um, were ever appointed to important positions by the Rebbe, because the Rebbe himself never went to Tomchetanimim, and the Rebbe didn't know the culture. It's like someone claiming to be a Ivy League and attending CCNY. Um, so so let, 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 me, let me just interrupt for clarity. The Chabad culture that came out of Russia, they all graduates in some way or another of Tom Hitmimim, Tom Hitmimim Neville, Tom Hitmimim Lubavitch, Tom Hitmimim, whatever it was it in Chernigov, when they, a couple of other places. So I think that's what difference between Chabad and other Chabad movements, meaning as you yourself many times said, that Chabad of Nezhen, Chabad of Kapust, Chabad of Liadi, they never had yeshivas. And Rashab created yeshiva and in a way revived Chabad movement. So everything that existed in Chabad to a large degree after that point, were graduates of that institution. We're going to talk. We can talk about the institution at some other point, but the fact of the matter is that the Rebbe never been part of that institution, or never been part of the traditional Chabad fabric, so to speak. He grew up in Dnipropetrovsk, right. which was a secular town. A lot of his teachers were were Litvaks who escaped to Dnipropetrovsk during the Second World War. The First World First War. War, yeah. So, uh, and he himself never stepped, uh, for whatever reason, even though he was a compatible age, he could perfectly go uh, and study in Tomchit Mimim, but may, either it was his decision or not decision, maybe decision of his father, whatever. He never went to Lubavitch. Then subsequently, he spent... Uh, a couple of decades in Berlin and Paris wasn't even around at Wotsk and whatever happened in Poland. It was also did it totally on his own. So just based on his biography, it wouldn't be surprising that this quote unquote Tomchit Mimim culture, maybe it wasn't even something he felt part of. But there's one thing to say that I'm not part of Tomchit Mimim culture is another thing is to have people who are certainly competent people with a lot to offer who are kept at bay. I mean, there's Avrom Mayor, then there's, what's the name of that guy whom he sent in exile in Meshorim? What was the name of that guy? 
Yeah, I can't remember his name. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm getting old. Uh, you know, I know what you mean. He was in Ru- he was in jail in Russia and Siberia for a number of years. Yeah, I, I don't remember his name. He wrote a book called Subotnik or Subota, Subota. Uh huh. Well, under a pseudonym. Okay. Um, that's what I mean. So look, we we would never know for sure, but. My question is, is there is there certain apprehension um, which which prevents you or maybe out of political reasons, any other reasons, psychological reasons, I don't know what, is afraid to create centers of power in Chabad in his lifetime. And well, by centers, I mean, by centers of power, I don't mean Punin, who has a lot of money. I don't mean... Uh, Ber Lazar, who has access to Russian oligarchs. I, I think I'm talking about people of spiritual substance, and they seem to be nobody around. Right. Well, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, Barry Garari called shots uh, many years ago uh, when I was speaking to him. And, uh, you know, I I was talking about who would be the next Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he sort of uh, mocked me and said, there will not be another Lubavitcher Rebbe. And uh, so I said, how do you know? know, um, And he said, you know, something that's not rocket science, that uh, a will is not dispositive. What's dispositive is closeness to a person while the Rebbe is alive. If the Hasidim would see that the Rebbe is close to a certain human being while he's alive, that would give that person uh, some cred, as they say. Uh-huh. Uh, but I don't think he was close to anyone. Groner was basically uh, a shikingle. No, no. But and, listen, I, 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 you, you, you go on again. You go on the subject of if he, if he groomed or not groomed a next rebbe. We no, know no, he I'm didn't. Saying, I'm saying, I'm saying, right. I'm saying much simpler than that. Take a guy who's competent, put him in charge of the yeshiva. Never, well, you know, never he, happened. Well, you know, I'll go one step beyond you. You know, I'll go one step beyond you and then I'll criticize myself because, you know, I'm not, you know, um, unlike most Lubavitchers, I'm not the biggest Bulgaiva in the world. I'm just uh, one eighth of a Bulgaiva, Shmini Shabashminis of a Bulgaiva. You know, these people are the big Bulgaivas. There's not, not, I've never met a bigger Bulgaivas than Lubavitcher Hasidim. I mean, supposedly they believe... Uh, there's there's a joke problem. about that, but I'll save it for some other occasion. I mean, but they're massive Baligaiva, massive. I mean, I've, I don't even understand why they're such massive Baligaiva, but uh, this is not what Lubavitch was, you know, in the older Hasidim. And I did meet the older Hasidim. The Lubavitchers don't, don't want to forgive me that I did meet them and I did talk to them. They don't want to forgive me. They can't, uh, they can't uh, stomach the fact that I actually met them and talked to them so, uh, but but that's a different subject. But um, so I will I will say this. First of all, the Rebbe didn't care about the yeshiva. He didn't care about it since he it was given to Gurari. What the hell did he care about the yeshiva? As a matter of fact, he wouldn't lose any sleep if the yeshiva was closed. Why should he Why should he extend, expend any energy to appoint um, competent administration and teaching staff? to a school that wasn't necessarily under his aegis. And that's clear. 
I, I many times spoke to people in Lubavitch. Yeah, but this was, said, there was also 770. And who, who runs 770? David Raskin. There was also Gerari's. Uh, oh, I understand. But, yeah, he's also head of uh, Yeshiva, but the practice. But many, but many times I asked Lubavitchers, why don't you guys get your act together and do what is done in the modern world, not in, uh, in Lita in 1930, in Lita in 1930, you know, most yeshivas had one Rosh Yeshiva and maybe a second one who was the son-in-law of the Rosh Yeshiva. And, you know, most of the learning was done by yourself. The Rosh Yeshiva gave a shir kololi, which is a major shir once a week, but most of your learning. But in America, every yeshiva, you know, why you must have had, must have 10 shirim, um, what's it called? Torvadas has at least four or five. Chaim Berlin has any number of shiurim. Mary um, Israel does. It goes on, so on and so forth. So I said, why don't you guys get Rabbi Shapiro from Miami, Rabbi Shuchat from LA, Rabbi Kalmanson from New Haven, and start a real yeshiva with grades, that you come in when you're 18 years old and you spend four years learning. That way, after four years, you'll produce a lot of really competent people. And I never got an answer for that, never. Why the Lubavitcher Yeshiva is just some, some amorphous, amorphous thing. And even to this day, you know, uh, they have all these for-profit yeshivas, which is a new, um, phenomena in the Jewish world, for-profit yeshivas. I mean, Satmar does not have for-profit yeshivas. The Bubbles doesn't have for-profit yeshivas. But in Lubavitch, you have for-profit yeshivas that are owned by individual Jews with what I call quite expensive um, tuition. Uh, and, and the owners are, uh, you know, if they can reach a certain um, uh, number of students, they're making a pretty penny out of this. I'm not saying that they don't exist in the yeshiva, in the, uh, in the, what, I don't like using the word because they're not really litvisha, but in the yeshiva world, in the misnagdisha world, they exist too. They're for-profit yeshivas and they're, and that. Um, but why doesn't those Lubavitch Central, whoever that is, and that, that we're going back to that because there is no Lubavitch Central, uh, start Serious Russian, and they have a few people. They have people. You know, the people I listed just now are all competent Russian yeshiva. And um, you set up a real yeshiva, real yeshiva with grades, uh, you know, and when you're finished, uh, after you're 22 years old, you you will be able to study and you'll be able to learn and you'll be able to or whatever. Instead, they have traveling people who give smicha to everyone right and left, and everyone knows what the questions are, and everyone walks around saying they have not only regular smicha, but they're also dayonim. I don't know if some of these people can paskim or a chayim. Forget about dayonis. They claim they know choshen mishpat. I mean, give me a break. I mean, uh, I, I don't think some of these people know how to pask in a, a din in, uh, about, the, uh, you know, benching or, or, or davening. I mean, uh, again, I'm not saying, uh, you know, but this is my impression. I mean, I've met many shluchim. Few of them sound, or, or maybe they're big, um, you know, maybe they're an oven. Maybe they're real uh, modest people, but they don't sound like they're Talmud HaChachamim. And um, it's strange. I mean, so I, I can't answer the question. And as far the Reb, as far as Rabbonim, 
you know, which is another interesting question. I guess until a certain point, it wasn't important to have a Rov and Kronheitz. Rabbi Krieger was there. He wasn't the Lubavitcher. Then a Rola Rov, Oliver Shalom was there. He wasn't the Lubavitcher. There were other Rabbanim Paskin Shilas. And uh, I guess there were a few Rabbanim Paskin, what they call Tepelefel Shilas. I don't know who they were. At some point, Rabbi uh, Zalman Shimon was brought in from um, Pittsburgh. I don't know what he was brought in on. Was he brought in as Rav of 770? Was he brought in as Mordasra of the Hal Shkuna? I, I don't know. It's unclear. Um, but whatever he was brought in, he, he was a Geja person. Apparently he was a Rav in Russia. Um, um, fine. But when Rav Zalman passed away, you know, then the Rebbe started pulling politics. Excuse me. You know, the Rebbe told... Instead of what every Hasidus, Baba of Satmar Skver, every Hasidus, the Rebbe appoints a Marda Asra. The Rebbe appoints, you know, and Satmar, the Satmar Rebbe may have officially been the Rav, but he appointed people as Dayonim. He appointed Satmar and Rav, uh, Rabbi Posen, as the effective Rav of, of, of Satmar. The Baba of the Rebbe appointed Samla, Rabbi Tauber Shlita, as the, the, the effective Dayan. Um, and, and, and Square, the Square Rebbe, uh, at some point appointed, um, you know, Rabbi Neuschloss, Oliver Shalom, Zechat Tzadik Ovrocha, as the uh, Rav of New Square. Um, but, you know, so the Rebbe did a, a curious thing. He said, elect a Rav. He told the people to elect a Rav. Of course, you know, by electing a Rav, that person who, who would be elected would not have the Gushpanka, I like that word, Gushpanka, he would not have the, the cachet of actually being appointed by the Rebbe. So he would just be, his power would flow from the people, but not from the Rebbe. So the, 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 the people in Kronheitz did have an election, and Rabbi Dovich Hans and Oliver Shalom, um, who was a, uh, not a, not a Geja people person, he was from Lubavitch, from Russia, but he wasn't Geja. Um, he was uh, actually a Talmud of Merkosarav, who became a Lubavitcher. Um, was appointed, but he was a member of the Rabbanut in, uh, he was a member of the, the rabbinate in uh, Rishon Lezion, and he was uh, elected by the people in Crown Heights. And the Rebbe told him to stay in Israel. The Rebbe didn't want him in Crown Heights. The Rebbe didn't want an official or serious rug in Crown Heights who, who knew Dalit Chelke Shulchan who knew all four parts of Shulchan and had experience as a rug in Rishon Lezion or wherever. Uh, so the Rebbe told him to stay, which is an amazing thing. So first the Rebbe said, you know, I'm not appointing anyone, elect a Rav. And then he said, you know, when they elected someone, he said, no, you stay in Israel, don't come here. So they did, had another election, and this time they were electing three people because to make sure that they wouldn't elect one rabbi, and they elected three people. Okay, none of them were were, were really Rabbonim in the sense, and before everyone gets excited there, I'm talking about a Rav in the European sense who knew Dalit Felke Shohamar. I mean, I talked to Rabbi Ashri, who was the last Kovman Rav, and Rabbi Ashri told me many times um, that every Rav in Dalita, and I'm sure it's true in Poland, I'm, I'm sure it's true in Hungary, where they were very concerned about Alaka, every Rav knew Dalit Chalke Any Rav of the town, of the Shkuna, knew Dalit Chalke Rabbi Marlowe, Rabbi Ezdaba, Rabbi Heller, Rabbi Heller was a big Lamden. He was a brisker, but he wasn't a Rav. He, he, he didn't have experience as a Rav. I'm not sure Rabbi Ezdaba had a lot of experience as a Rav either, and I'm not sure Rabbi Marlow had a lot of experience as a Rav. And Rabbi Libus, or Yitzhak Libus, 
who was a Galtiana and was a Belzer Chassid and living in the Bronx, moved to Ballpark. He wrote in an interview in the Belzer newspaper, Machna Haredi, that he spent several months in Crown Heights teaching these people halachas that a Rob needed to know about Shrita, about, uh, you know, Shrita, Yerdea, and similar things. Uh, you know, he gave him a crash course in uh, in, in halacha. By the way, another great man um, who the Lubavitchers um, love, but of course they never never read his books, Jonathan Sachs, all of a shalom, when he was elected chief rabbi of England, uh, the first thing he did was go off to Israel to study halacha, because with all due respect to Jonathan Sachs, he was a graduate of Oxford or Cambridge, and he could talk well, and he knew a lot about theology, but he didn't know much about halacha because he, I don't know where he got smicha, probably in Jews college, and that wasn't exactly the world's greatest uh, Talmudic uh, halachic institution. I'm not taking anything away from Jonathan Sachs. He was a smart man, He was, you know, and he knew his limitations. And the first thing he did was go off to Israel and study halacha for a year before he assumed the chief president. Um, okay, so, you know, this, this, whole, this whole history is fascinating, but it's only important if it's uh, exhibit in Rebbe's avoidance of creating other centers of power who could, and those centers of power could, God forbid, continue even after his passing. Well, you can see that, that he refused to have a serious rabbinate. I used to talk to a lot of Hungarian uh, rabbonim and Hungarian chassidim. You know, I'm not a Hungarian, if, uh, if the people out there need to know. I'm not a Hungarian Shayid. You know, I come from a place a lot east of Hungary, a lot east of Hungary, you know, maybe a thousand miles from Budapest. And uh, that's where my parents are from. And... Um, but I was very friendly with the, the Hungarian Rabbonim, and they all would tell me, you know, uh, this is after the Rebbe had a stroke, and they all said, you know, the Rabbonim don't Ibernema. And I said, hey, hey, uh, Rebbe, you don't know anything about Chabad. Chabad doesn't have any respect for Rabbonim. Why? Because, first of all, the Rebbe didn't encourage respect for Rabbonim. He didn't encourage Crown Heights to elect serious Rabbonim. He didn't encourage Kronheitz. And at that time, there were still such people, serious people. Um, and two, you know, the, the Soviet Revolution from 1918 to uh, 1945 destroyed Rabbonis in Russia. There were no Rabbonim. There, you know, uh, either they were underground Rabbonim or they were, uh, you know, uh, on the other hand, where my father comes from, which, as I said, is uh, thousands of miles from Marmarash, um, but it was white Russia, and it's part of white Russia that was part of the Polish Republic after 1918. There were Rabbonim, and my father had the greatest derech eretz for a Rav. I mean, I'm not talking about the American rabbis, but the old-time Rabbonim, my father would get up for them. My father would have tremendous derech eretz for a Rav, not because of any reason, but because that's how the way they were trained. You know, if you were a kid in 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 a, in a city in in Europe, the Rav, ooh, the Rav given the Rav. I remember when my father visited a certain community um, in in New York City. And the first thing my father said, you know, and not Crown Heights, not Crown Heights. I mean, you know what they called um, Rabbi Dworkin? 
They called him Zalman Shimon. They didn't even call him Reb. Suddenly, these people became big Hasidim, and they did away with the Reb, like Lubavitchers do. Suddenly, they became big Hasidim, and they and and they became Geja people, you know, and they did away with it. And they called them Zalman Shimon. Not in America, friends. In America, Arov should be called Reb Zalman Shimon, Rabbi Dworkin, Horav Dworkin. But the, the Rebbe encouraged it. The Rebbe didn't care. And so everyone, the Rebbe didn't encourage the creation of a counterpoint to him called Rabbons. He didn't encourage it. Even if the Rebbe had brought in, uh, there were people, I don't know these people, Chaykin, Chveisver, uh, uh, you know, Lieberman, David Nation, Lieberman. I, I don't know these people. I know names and but there were people who had experience as, as Rabbonim. They were experienced Rabbonim. Uh, you know, even if he had brought in them as a Rav, uh, you know, there would have been something as a counterpoint. But he didn't want a counterpoint. He didn't want them to. And, and he didn't want a Yid in Crown Heights to say after he died, wait a second, the Rebbe talked Niftagorn, but the Rebbe gave me the Gushpanka de Malka. The Rebbe appointed me as, as Rebbe Crown Heights. I have certain power. And the same thing is true when Gurari died. If if there was a successor appointed to Gurari, that person could say, wait a second, the Rebbe appointed me as Yeshivarish of Tanchitamimim. I have a certain uh, power flowing from the Rebbe. The Rebbe made sure that there was almost no one who could tie that. Maybe. Rabbi Vihes that are in, uh, the Rosh Hashiva, the Mashkiach in Crown Heights. I don't remember his name. Yeah, but the, it was, um, this, this whole this whole this whole spill is only interesting as a reflection on values. So right, the, the was was when you when when you said that we that the Rebbe lost anchor to Europe and Russia. It it talks about certain values that you described that are lost. And instead of them, very rapidly, new values appeared. And essentially, if you today a shliach with access to oligarchy, you are on the top shelf of Chabad. Well, and the, listen, I, I, I will tell you, I grew up, you know, I don't want to say this, but, uh, you know, I grew up surrounded by Chabad. I, I don't want to say, because all people will come in China, you're not all about you like they they always tell me. You know, all right, I'm not all about Suddenly the same people who tell, tell a Jew who uh, doesn't know Aleph days because he cuts a check to Chabad and says, oh, Rabbi, arguably Rabbi Schneerson was the greatest spiritual leader in the last 150 years. They say that that person is a Lubavitcher. But, you know, I'm not. All right, fine. I'm not, you know, in Israel, a number of years ago, um, there was Machlekes between the Belzer Rebbe, Rabbi Socher Dovra Kayach, who's the Belzer Rebbe, and a cousin of his, who was also an Enikul, a Recht Enikul, to say, of, of, uh, of the... Um, of the third Belzer Rebbe, uh, and he, he was called a Machmovka Rebbe, he's still alive, and some Sant Machsidim wanted to set up this Rebbe, the Machmovka, as a counter Belzer Rebbe. Didn't some Machmovka passed away, I think, the last old week. Rebbe Right, but this, this Machmovka was a nephew of, of the old Machmovka, because Machmovka Rebbe, the Machmovka Rebbe um, had a sister, who married the Belzer, the Belzer Rover of Aaron Rekayev's brother, and they got divorced. And the Machnovka Rebbe's sister took 
the child and moved to Eretz Yisrael. She was a Zionist, and uh, they had a child. And this, the child, this is the Machnovka Rebbe. So he's a grand, a grand nephew of the last Machnovka Rebbe who lived in Moscow and was the last uh, official Rebbe in the Soviet Union. Uh-huh. Uh, although the Rivenza Rebbe was still there afterwards, but. Um, so the, the Machnovka Rebbe told the Belzer Rebbe, he said, Ich bin nicht the Belzer Rebbe. I'm really not the Belzer Rebbe. But no one can take away my my Belzer Yichas. And I say the same thing. I'm Taka, maybe not a Lubavitcher Chassid. But no one can take away my Lubavitcher uh, background. No one can take it away from me. You know, you want to take it away, because hey, but no one can take it away. But the, I, I'm getting off the subject. Um, and I forgot what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what was you asking? I forgot what I was going to well, say. Wait, you know, wait, wait. Let me let me ask you something. So when when Rebbe told Avrom Mayor not to come to America, do you think he was concerned that he was a powerful personality? Absolutely. So he would create a certain position of power. But on the other hand, listen, on the other hand, you know, all those shluchim who for all intents and purposes, they run their own business. They, today, they're more powerful than all those Rabonim combined. I mean, Chabad today is run by those satellite shluchim who have access to big money, big business. They're people, they're people who are who are published every, you know, every week in the Chabad yellow rags. I mean, the amount of time okay. they, 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 they probably, Ber Lazar probably have on staff, a special person who feeds uh, uh, pictures to those uh, despicable yellow Chabad rags every week. Or right. not every but, but week, several, several times a week. And those, so, yeah, so sometimes, you know, listen, when, when, I, when I speak of shlichus, so the Chabadsky, they come to me with Taina and they say, hey, there are a lot of shlichus who do good, shluchim who do good, blah, 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 blah. Yes, I'm aware of those, a lot of shluchim who do good. They called failed shluchim in Chabad. Right. Why they call them? I don't call, I don't call them failed shluchim. Your culture calls them failed shluchim. Why? Because they publish, uh, they publish, uh, uh, they publish picture of, of Bel Lazar uh, four times a week. Why? Just because he has a, a personal connection to Malachamovis? Okay, I believe one of the things the Rebbe did was try to, um, you know, it's like uh, in the Dor HaFloga, in, in, in the Chumash, what's described, you know, he, he, he decided that he wanted to mix everything up. So people from Russians were sent to run um, the Lubavitcher community in, in Yerushalayim. Yerushalmi's like Rabbi Kohn and others were sent to run the Lubavitcher Yeshiva in Kar Chabad. Americans were sent to Nachos Har Chabad and other places to enforce the Rebbe's will. And so, you know, I think he wanted to make sure that these different cultures never got too powerful, that the Yerushalmi culture would never be too powerful about it. The Russian culture of Kvarchabad would never be too powerful. And that even in a certain, the American culture he liked because that was the culture he had personal control over. So, you know, at some point he sent all a group of Americans, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, you know, to to important jobs of Chabad in Israel. Um, and when the people arrived from Central Asia, when was this, in the late 60s or early 70s? You know, there are a whole group of Lubavitchers. Many yes. of them were, were 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 not Russians. Many of them were Georgians. But but some were Russians, Lubavitchers that survived in Tashkent and Samarkand. You know, I met some of them because they were relatives of mine. And um, they talked a different language. They didn't speak the language of Chabad of America. They were talking about uh, working on yourself, of self-improvement, of introspection. Uh, they weren't talking the language of who farts does, I can use that expression. Hello, I mean, hello. What's your language talk- then? <laughs> what? What's your language then? <laughs> well, I'm Ungarish. I'm pronouncing it the Ungarish away. You know, oh. they, um, they, um, they, um, you know, they had a different uh, mindset and, um, you know, and I uh, would tell them that this is not what we're talking about in the United States. Not that I disagreed with them, but that this is not the language of the Rebbe. They didn't know what I was talking about. But of course, within a few years, they were assimilated into the uh, mainstream Chabad culture, and uh, there was no longer any talk of, uh, you know, Arbiton of Shiach, um, you know, uh, becoming introspective. Uh, you know, this was all. The, it was all forgotten because they were now Israelis and they were now members of. Yeah, but you know, culture of Chabad right now is you have, uh, you know, as, let me repeat, I'm not sure it's got recorded. All those people who complain to me that I don't notice Shluchim who are poor uh, and who are not, you know, are not after money, oligarchs. Hey, hey, I noticed them. I, they're few. But, but you yourself call them failed Shluchim, not me. Not me. You yourself. How do I know? I look yeah. at you. I, I look at the people you you publish in your yellow rags. I, I look people who you you consider successful. Shluchim. Somebody like Ber Lazar, who is a right hand man of Melachamol. Well, you know, but this this didn't come out. What to use? Melachamol. You know, that would be Melachamol. Melachamol is mean, a fraud in sleep. Anyway. To, to use Lubavitcher terminology, it's not yesh and it's not out of nowhere. I mean, the Rebbe lo- loved to talk about the tractorist, uh, uh, you know, a bulldozer. He used these terminologies. And why did the Rebbe use only military terms? Sivas Hashem, Nisayim. These are all Israeli military terms. Why did the Rebbe d- adopt military terminology? Because that's what the Rebbe wanted. He wanted shock troops. He wanted to listen. He lived. He was there. He saw what Yamach Shmo was doing in Germany and Mussolini in Italy. He wanted shock troops. He saw him um, uh, Hashem, and more and more. I can't, I mean, I'm not uh, thinking, but he, he used military terminology. Why? I, I would say, because I would he, say, I would say it was somebody who came from Russia and had his fill with a total militarization of everything, militarization of agriculture, all military terms. I was shocked. I was shocked when I heard this in Kron Heights and I couldn't understand why. I remember going to Bell Lipsker and say, what's going on here? I just came from Russia. The, the, the Russian plague was that there's military terms used for everything. And you can see how those 
militarization, even uh, decades later, shows, shows its ugly head even today in the world. But that yeah. was the language of Russia. Everything, okay. uh, everything is in military terms. And then I come to Crown Heights. I thought it's going to be like alternative movement. And here you have Sivis Hashem. And, and I say, why, why, why are you doing it's that? Okay. Yeah, I mean, every, everything, you know. And that, you and know, even, even I know, you, know you, ask, you ask today, you ask today, what, what, what terminology? Kibushor, it's, you know, he's going to say, we, well, we well. completely cankered the whole universe. And well, he doesn't, well, even he doesn't rabbit- mean to canker it with, with, uh, with knowledge. He doesn't mean to canker it. Kim, 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 I mean, that's not what he means. He means that we well, have Chabad he, house he, in Tanzania. We have Chabad house in Kathmandu. We have a Chabad house in oh, in, in North even, Africa. Even the Rebbe's terminology in regards to uh, Barry Gorari, Bombus. What sort of language is that? A uh, Rav uses Bombus. I mean, uh, you know, what sort of thing is this? Bombus? Does she Bombus? I mean, would he say? Would he? If the Rebbe were addressing a thousand secular Jews, secular Jews, businessmen, millionaires, scientists. Would he talk to them that the fact that they're not religious and they're not observant is that that that's a bomba, that that's going to explode on them? No, he wouldn't use that terminology. But but, you know, internally, he just kept on using this military terminology. Bombas. What's the term? Well, who they have to say? I mean, I hate to say it, but who's talking like that? Bombas. I mean, uh, it's a bomba. I mean, he could have said the same thing, that this is a terrible thing that Gorari doing. But, you know, no, he said they're going to explode. They're going to explode, and it's going to be like a bomba. Is that what he wanted? I mean, let me ask him a question. Did he want the bomb to explode and bury it on his mother? No comment. But I have no comment either. But I, I don't believe he did, because I'm not that uh, far foreign, as they say. I, I don't believe he did. I just don't believe he knew what he was talking about. And Viter, you know, as far as Mayor is concerned, I don't think he was worried that Mayor was going to compete with him. I think he was worried that Mayor would show the people in Crown Heights, the Americans, those Americans from Torvadas who joined Lubavitch in the 40s, and the rivals from France and um, and wherever they came from, Russia, he would show them what a real Fabrengan is. And a real Fabrengan is not what was going on in 770. And that's what he was worried about. He was worried about that Mayor's Fabrengan, which would be Lebedic and, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what it is, but that's what he would, sh- and he was worried about that, that it would be a counter production. And he didn't want another production going on. And a production that may, in fact, attract some of these Ruskies and, uh, and Marikanskis to, to, uh, to, to, the, to, to come to Mayor. Because I think the bottom line is the Rebbe was very insecure, and we saw that um, in his fight against Gurari when he started talking. I mean, anyone who knew Barry Gurari, and there were those of us who did know him, he was not a private person, um, knew that he had no interest in being Lubavitcher Rebbe. We knew that. Uh, but the Rebbe kept on talking that this is all about the Benkel. He kept on saying it's all about the Benkel. It's, and the Rebbe didn't say a Maimon Chassidus while the trial was going on, as if the Rebbe was saying that Barry was fighting about the Bengal. 
He was fighting about who was Lubavitcher Rebbe. Now, only a person who had um, inferiority complex about his own um, legitimacy would have been talked like that. I mean, with the, um, I don't know, with Satma Rebbe, if someone, some uh, Nechala Nicholsberger, I mean, there was a guy like this, uh, I think he's still alive, but Nechala, I forgot what his last name was. Um, you know, he became a Rebbe in Muncie. Would Satma Rebbe ever say? Yeah, Sa- you know, Satma Rebbe well, will send people to kill him. Well, I'm not so sure about that. I don't think Satmar is any more violent than Lubavitch. You know, I think just that Satmar had a much worse PR system and didn't have a PR system at all. You know, when Rabbi Rifkin refused to sign a document of, of, that the Lubavitch ever wanted to put Dr. Yusuf Raphael in Hiram, Rabbi Rifkin was terrorized. His house was uh, smeared with well, that's 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 a whole and different parsha. I mean, you can't just like it is a different drop parsha. it in. It's a so different, let's see. I mean, you want to tell this parsha? No, let's tell this parsha. But it's no, a no, different I'm not going to tell it. But I, I'm just you're saying the Samara would have sent people to kill him. No, the Samara had terror. You know, if you're following what goes on in Israel today, last week in Gear, the inter internecine warfare in Gear, it's a million times worse than what happened, ever happened in Satmar with any Hasidus. I'm not a defender of Satmar, but, you know, Gear has terror squads. Uh, Lubavitch has terror squads. We know that. We know that Mrs. Gurari was beaten by Lubavitcher, by Tomim, by, you know, and I know his name, and I'm sure other people know his name too. And I'm sure by now he's a Hassan, a Kinder, and a Gate with Shana Kapata, with a Langa Gartel, you know, you know, every Hasidus has terror squads. Every Hasidic, Satmar never cared about PR. Now, maybe they, in the last few years, they've gotten uh, a little bit more PR interested. Lubavitch has always cared, so they've always covered up their terror, but they've always been involved in these. So, so, so listen, I mean, okay, so, so, Adarabe, you, you want to mention the whole story with Rifkin? Let's, let's talk about Rifkin. No, we can just I'm not like drop it in. Though. Fine. I'm not interested in talking about Larry Rifkin today. I'm just, say, in reaction to what you're saying about Satmar, I'm saying that every Hasidus, it doesn't matter if its name is Gear, if its name is Bells, if its name is is whatever, they all have terror squads. And it's and you, you, psychologically, you understand why. Because the Iskashras to a Rebbe is so powerful that when someone goes against the Rebbe, either inside your Hasidus or outside, there will always be people who will say, this is unacceptable. We're going to do something about it. So, you know, every Hasidus has terror, as the Rebbe said. The Rebbe said, terror. You know, well, you know, maybe there's not. But, you know, someone knocked Mrs. Gurari's eye out. I mean, what was it? Malach uh, and knocked her eye out. I mean, I don't know. I mean, and by the way, uh, I, I myself was in Barry Gurari's home. And uh, across the street, there was a car parked with two uh, thugs. Uh, uh, you know, I don't mean to uh, in any way imply a stereotype, but there are two Russian thugs um, and um, photographing everyone who came into Garari's home. And the state police came and uh, told them to get the hell out of there. And wow. uh, so Lubavitch has its own terror, if I can say what Lubavitch Rebbe, uh, the way he pronounced it. Every Hasidist has terror. You know, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that the, uh, you know, uh, the Boston Rebbe has terror. He's a minor Rebbe, or that the phrase for, you know. But every major Hasidus has its terror, and uh, so, but that's not what I'm talking about. You know, um, you know, I think the mayor, 
you know, on the other hand, you know, I can make an argument that the Rebbe did appoint uh, um the Mashpia in, in the Yeshiva in Karchabad. Sure. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean that's true. That's true. It goes against everything I'm saying. He did appoint them. I, I don't, uh, you know, claim. I, I'm not claiming that everything is a science here. I'm not claiming that I've got it down to scientific things. I'm just claiming there's certain trends that one can see. Yes, the idea that the Rebbe appointed uh, Futafas, um, you know, goes against what I'm saying, you know, uh, but, you know, there may be a reason for it, but the, the, the clear trend is that the Rebbe didn't want a rabbinate in Crown Heights or a strong rabbinate. The Rebbe didn't want a successor to Gerari. The Rebbe didn't groom a successor to himself. Um, and uh, the Rebbe got rid of another person who I won't mention, who became a powerful figure through his um, money. He got rid of him, and uh, a person only returned to Crown Heights after the Rebbe died. Who um, was that? I'm getting interested. Who was that? That's a man called David Fisher. Ah, okay. Wasn't it like a Hassan, a David Fisher, and Shemtov last week? Is that is that the same Fisher? Maybe. I know. Maybe. Yeah. Money talks. No one walks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't follow. I don't follow Lubavitch today. It means nothing to me, Lubavitch, because it's the Hasidus ended in 1994 to me because the last connection with real Chabad was Rabbi Menachem Schneerson. As much as I criticize him, he was the son-in-law of the Rayats and he was a Schneerson and he had, you know, a certain amount of legitimacy. And but once he uh, he was gone. I mean, what's what's Lubavitch? I mean, when I spoke to Reb Chaim, you know, Reb Chaim Lieberman, you know, uh, and I asked him a question in the Hasidus, uh, you know, not not Chabad history, he looked at me and said, um, Anash, Groner and Krinsky, and uh, he said a dead pin. I cracked up laughing, you know. Let, let 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 me just say something. Uh, I think it's important to understand. I think I mentioned to you before that the Rebbe wasn't part of Chabad per se. He wasn't part of Tom uh, Chitmimim. He he certainly comes, you know, he comes from the family, but his culture, where he grew up, is very different. It's very different. It's very different even from Chabad culture. And then he doubled up on it that. Instead of going to Warsaw, to Atvotsk, he went to Berlin and then Paris, which is which is a strange thing in itself, worth worth noting. Okay. But and then on top of that, as much as you know, Rebetzins they run Hasidic movements. So Musa, she was uh, I don't know if she was modern, but she was certainly not your traditional uh, Rebetzin. And uh, you you mentioned to me herself. She sort of looked at disdain at Russians. What's the what's the expression you used? Spana. Spana, exactly. Yeah. And you heard it from what? From uh, from Mina. Oh. I heard it from Mina Gurari. Mina yeah. Haskin yeah. Gurari. Yeah. So the Rebetzin Musa called Kasidim uh, Spana, which is which is Spana in Russian, means sort of like a a criminal youth, you know, like the guy who hangs out in uh, in the in the courtyards and a bit of a like a borderline criminal criminal kid. That's a spana. Mm-hmm. So that's that's so that's how he 
referred to those Hasidim. I'm sure not all of them, but you know, there's certain there's certain attitude because you know she was uh, a daughter mm-hmm. of I know she was daughter of the Rebbe, but she was also daughter of a person who was very rich by Russian standards. And the, subsequently, she spent decades in Berlin, and then she spent decades in Paris, and that's sort of a cultural personality. You know, people, people, people come to me, people come to me and say the following. What chutzpah you have to defend Barry Gurani? There was, a, it, it, the books that he touched, it was a public institution, not only the public institution, the stories of Hasidim who would knock out their gold teeth or tooth that they can pay Muhammad for that year. And those money that comes from those Hasidim who knocked their own tooth, they came to assembling this library. And I say, okay, uh, those teeth that came out to pay their yearly due to Rayats went to have two decades of doing nothing in Paris and Berlin, going to school, uh, living, in expensive, right. uh, living in expensive apartments, free of charge completely for the family of Menachem Mendel Schneerson. So, so there's some Russian Yid who takes out his tooth, breaks it out so he can pay money to, to the Rebbe for his yearly share. And he, those money, they, yeah, they go to the books, but more, more than to the books, they go to sustaining this family who can for two decades pretty much do what they want in Paris and Berlin. Well, let me say something, you know, um, that, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I have many objections to Maimed altogether. Um, You know, it's an interesting institution, but uh, the way it was run in the last hundred years, I mean, I know people are going to laugh at me. Uh, I have certain objections to it that when I read that the Anash in the Soviet Union in the days of Stalin sent Maimed from the Soviet Union to Latvia, I was flabbergasted. I mean, uh, you know, on one hand, the Rayats is sending money to the Hasidim in in the Soviet Union, so they shouldn't have to work on Shabbos. Um, And on the other hand, the Hasidim are sending money from the Soviet Union to Latvia to the Rayats for Maimed. So, I mean, I don't quite get the whole thing. You know, how Hasidim living under Stalin should be expected to send Maimed to Latvia. Now, uh, that's number one. Number two, it's not only what you're saying that it supported the Rebbe and his wife in comfort, but if we're to accept the argument of the Lubavitcher Rebbe that the books belong to the Hasidim, then I knocked out my gold tooth not to support the Rebbe, but to support the Hasidim. Why would I knock out my gold tooth to support the Hasidim? I mean, uh, you know, if, you can't have it both ways. If the books belong to the Rebbe and knocked out my tooth, okay, I knocked out my tooth so the Rayats could buy another expensive manuscript that, uh, you know, a, a una, uniscript. It was the only type of it in the world. Or, but if I knocked out my tooth so that the Rayats could buy a book, so um, Dr., um, what's his name, the librarian JTS, Alexander Marks, and other scholars could use it, well, that's ridiculous. Why would I knock out my tooth? so that some scholar in JTS could walk into the library and use the book. I mean, so you can't have it both ways, but Lubavitch wants to have it every which possible way. And they know that it's a lie, that that the, the argument which they won the case against Gorari is a big 
that why the books didn't no no but like the- you know every every time you mention barry you know you, it's like throwing red in their eyes why why but why, why even bother but i'm saying hey hey adaraba if you if you if you habad you had your history straight uh, which which people can reflect on but for for all intents and purposes barry gorari is i know i'm interested in rabbi as a man not as god i'm interested in rabbi as person who lived certain life within certain family and for for whatever reason you all out there hello who treat rabbi as god you don't treat him as a human being i'm interested in rabbi as a human being therefore well the only person who had the window and the rabbi as a human being would be people who are part of this family and out of that family right. the only person who survived is Barry Gurari that's why for me and, it's interesting what he had to say because he saw it on inside but, but i but i disagree with one thing you said i mean when you said that they view um the rabbi as god right yeah i said that yeah i think they view the cinema view the rabbi as a cash cow um the rabbi is a cash cow He's, a, he's an interesting way of making money. So all the Hasidim, you know, he's a way of making money, you know. Uh, uh, you know, you use the Rebbe as a, you know, Rebbe Schneerson, Rebbe Schneerson, this, that, you know. You know, it's all money. Everything is money, uh, you know, and that's it. You know, I, I don't believe for a minute that any of these people really, uh, you know, he's not God, he's not Mashiach. He's just a good cash cow. He's an excellent cash cow. You know, uh, like I always laughed before that, you know, oh, Rabbi, he's the arguably the greatest Jewish leader. You know, how would a secular American Jew know, know who the greatest Jewish leader was? Did he ever hear of Chaim Brisker? Did he ever hear of the Vilna Gaon? Did he ever hear of the Gary No, I mean, you can tell him that anyone's the greatest Jewish leader. The the ignorance is unbelievable. So, so listen, uh, the, know, the, as, as, as much as I didn't want to go into the subject, but you're sort of forcing me to, and that is, when when those ignorant shluchim they go around and they tell bobemises about the rabbi because they don't know better is uh, the issue here is that okay so it, it sort of connects to what we spoke about if you have a competent on organization if you have certain neighborhood i can go to and say oh this is how life should be lived then okay go out and go out and advertise but if you don't, if if you have Crown Heights and other towns where you have your centers who are not functional, who are not who are not properly managed, with the schools are problematic for all. If this is the case, how can you go out and sort of advertise this way of life to other people? You you either lying or you're making things up. And you know you. It's a good. The, the, the PR. The, asking... the, the PR. The PR. The PR. The PR thing is is lit. There's a name for it in American culture called snake oil salesmen. Well, that's what they are. They are snake oil salesmen. I mean, Obavich uh, is the classic snake oil people. I mean, they, that's what they're selling. I mean, they're selling snake oil. I mean, uh, listen, it's yeah. It's but but the thing because... is, you know, you know what they'll tell you. Yeah, we're selling snake oil. But but we do believe in the snake oil. You understand? We we take the snake oil very seriously. Listen, there's a lot more. You know, we didn't even begin to discuss Chabad houses, and they're, in my opinion, 
um, scandals that have rocked more than a few Chabad houses, both financial and sexual. Um, we haven't begun to discuss them. Hold and, on, hold on. Know, We've got to leave something for, for the next for the next. Edition. I know, but 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 <laughs> what I'm driving at, what I'm driving at is, um, you know, so there is a scandal in a Chabad house. The way the way Chabad Shabbat, and I like to call it Shabbat. Uh, you know, I, I've begun to believe that that's the correct pronunciation. Shabbat, the way Shabbat is run today. There is no Supreme Court, so there's no court of appeal. If a Shabbat representative in um, Salt Lake City, and uh, you know, I don't mean anything by it. Maybe the Shabbat representative in Salt Lake City is really an honest guy. I'm just using a fake uh, name. A, uh, but let's say the Shabbat, Shabbat representative there has a scandal. Now, he is the supreme leader of Shabbat in, in his state. He's what they call the, the Rosh Medina. So is this any way of running the movement? I mean, uh, when he's the, he's the beginning and the end. I mean, so if you have a problem with his uh, leadership, money, sex, whatever, you know, who do you appeal to? Who do you go to? And uh, I'll go to another direction. Who is the halachic authority for this international movement called Shabbat? I mean, who sets halachic standards in terms of um, men and women? Um, there are hundreds of halachic questions. I mean, I, I'm not a uh, rabbi, and uh, but there's, I mean, thousands of halachic questions. In, in my limited experience, um, you know, I'm not going to say I was ever shliach, but I, I was involved in outreach. Um, and in my limited uh, experience, there are halachic questions at every, as they say in Yiddish, treat and shrit. At every every footstep, there are halachic questions. Uh, now, who who is the halachic decisor? The Vahad Rabbani Lubavitch? I mean, the Vahad Rabbani Lubavitch will answer questions if two shluchim are fighting over turf. But uh, who exactly is setting um, the halachic standards for a Shabbat house? I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, so, so this is another issue where the this loose, loose uh, bureaucracy, very loose, or, or I would even argue non-existent bureaucracy, um, this is is problematic, you know. Is problematic. I mean, uh, you know, and, and and who sets these standards in the uh, in all these Lubavitcher yeshivas across the country? Hundreds. Of, there must be like by now fifty independent nesiftas all over the country. I mean, are there any um, common standards? Is there, if I can borrow the term, is there a common core of curriculum? Is there, you know, what you know? You know, I don't know. I mean, uh, beats me. I mean, uh, I mean, Shabbat is so, um, you know, decentralized that I don't know. Is it good? Is it bad? Maybe, you know, they claim it's good because it's their way of appealing to um, to uh, the American sense of the individual. So they're claiming that it's decentralized, you know. But, you know, uh, centralization is also a good thing. For example, the OU a number of years ago issued a... Um, you know, it wasn't a decree. The OU is not a fascist organization, but the OU passed a resolution that no synagogue without some sort of mechitza can be a member of the OU. And it did work. I mean, I think as we speak, almost every synagogue in the OU has some sort of mechitza, which wasn't true 40 years ago. So here we see that centralization does have an influence. But what about Shabbat? 
I don't know. Who's their halachic authority? Who's Shabbat's halachic authority? I mean, I don't know. They don't know either. I mean, uh, you know, the, they have an halachic authority, a, a Rebbe who's really not alive anymore. Maybe really, I should leave out the word really. Maybe he is alive. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm confused about a lot of what goes on in Lubavitch today. Um, you know, all I see, and I, I am, I don't want to be said that I'm a, I'm religious. I'm, a, I am what I am. I'm not a Fermak. But, uh, you know, it's, it's pitiful to see, um, you know, Lubavitch having singles events and uh, divorces and uh, uh, young Lubavitch is dying and the cause of their death is called, quote, end quote, suddenly, suddenly, that means in the secular world, suddenly means suicide. Uh, so I don't know if these people know what they're writing or if they don't. But in the secular world, when you say uh, Joe Palooka died suddenly, it basically implies that he committed suicide. So uh, more than a few people on Colive die suddenly, young people. So are these people suicides or, or whatever? I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe I'm crazy. You know, I do know uh, in in the Olam Cotton that I live that more than a few Lubavitchers have committed suicide. And um, of all shapes and sizes, I mean, people who are tzedakumina, people who are in the process of becoming Lubavitch, people who have become Geja, you know, uh, and do you think the movement cares? Do you think there's the movement puts on suddenly like on a tape recorder, stop? No, it keeps on going. It's a machine. It's, it's like the Rebel wanted, a tractor. I mean, I'll tell you the truth. I, I, as I said before, you know, I'm not, I didn't really grow up in, uh, in a Lubavitch environment. I mean, I know Lubavitch, but uh, I never heard, um, you know, this idea uh, of, uh, of a chitzon, that a person is a chitzon. You know, he's a, um, a person who's all, all uh, PR. And, uh, I mean, Barry told me that, uh, you know, this is the worst insult possible in Lubavitch of, of yore. In the old Lubavitch that he was part of, there was no worse insult than calling a person a chitzon. And the best compliment was that a person was a pini, uh, you know, very internalized. Today, it's the exact opposite. Now, now, they, call it, now, now they call it a failed schlich. Right. Right, exactly. And, you know, I subscribed to Krachabad magazine for many years, and you know, it wasn't a waste of money. I learned a tremendous amount from Krachabad magazine. <laughs> um Absolutely. Just like the CAA subscribed to Prav Benizetia, and I guarantee yeah. you, the, ser- yeah. the serious CIA people learned tremendous amounts about the Soviet Union from reading yeah. that. Um, um, so I read Karchabad religiously, religiously. And there's a letter there in one Karchabad magazine that the Rebbe wrote to Anash in Tel Aviv in the 50s. And he tells them, don't have anything to do with the Alta Lubavitcher and the Enyankov show in Tel Aviv, these are people, Gurari, I don't know what their names were, Shmero Gurari, others, because he says they wake up late, they can't get anything done, they don't know how to tie their shoes, I want bulldozers, I want tractoristen, I like, uh, what's his name, this guy who was a BT from the Technion, I can't remember his name, he lived in the Rebbe's house for a while, uh, I don't remember his name, I see I'm old, um, but he lived by the Rebbe for a while, he was a BT, and the Rebbe loved him because he went to the Technion. He was a, a, some sort of engineer. That's what the Rebbe wants. He wants a tractor. He wants, he wants a chitzen. The Rebbe didn't want Panini. Panini people, the Rebbe thought, were idiots. They were kashlofen. They were chnokas. 
He didn't want these people. He turned Chabad around on its head. He turned it around on its head. He didn't want a, a, a Yid who was a Pnimi who sat and thought about how he could improve himself, self-improvement, spiritual actualization. No, he wanted a guy who went out with the Coca-Cola truck and sold this product and, and screamed that Coke is better than Pepsi and Coke is a million times better than Pepsi and Royal Crown Cola sucks. And that's what he wanted. And he got it. He got it today. He has thousands of such people who have no idea about spiritual actualization. And that's why in Eretz Yisrael, Baruch Hashem, in Eretz Yisrael, Braswell is putting Lubavitch away. They're putting Lubavitch away. The cutting edge of Bali Tshuva in Israel is Braswell, not Lubavitch. Because why? Because the musicians, the artists, the people in Israel are looking for spiritual values. And those spiritual values can still be found in groups of Braswell. They cannot be found in Chabad. I'm sorry to say, even though I personally am closer to Chabad than I do, I never have any closeness to Boston. No, but I mean, listen, not, is, not Israel, Israel is a whole different Parsha, and it has to do with the fact that uh, the Mashiachism is cultivated there in many places, well, and you take ignorant kids, uh, and you... Uh, I mean, well, I'm, I'm, I'm getting off the subject, but if Braslov had a uh, presence in the United States, they'd put Lubavitch away here too. Yeah, but with all due respect, Braslov has invented Chabad of today. You know, if you, if you know what I mean, it's the same kind I of. I hear what you're saying. It's the same kind of idea that people get attached I to hear the what Rebbe, you're and they I, need I this what dopamine. And when when it's no longer there, I, I hear you, what you can't kick the habit. I hear what you're saying. I'm not even going to argue with you, but I'm just saying organizationally and and in other means, you know, in Israel for sure. Lubavitch's loss is no longer the cutting edge. So organizationally, the Rebbe sent out the Coke salesman, and you can say Coke, uh, Washington, Tartimashna, both languages, Coke as Coke and Coke as Coca-Cola, whatever you wish. Um, he sent yeah, out exactly. No, listen, it's exactly true. Why, why, if you have a spiritual upheaval, if you seek spirituality, you connect yourself to a group that in today's day and age is all about money? Right. It's about money and PR and power. And they all go together. You know, each one uh, plays off the other, you know, and, uh, and you know, I don't know what's going on in the Soviet Union. I, you know, in, in, in Russia, I have no idea, you know, um, you know, um, but, you know, I imagine there's a lot of money uh, being passed there and um, it leads to power and the vice versa. And uh, the PR, as you said in this interview, the PR is uh, is very important. Um, you know, so I mean, I will say this. Uh, uh, you know, I was never his biggest fan, but Goldschmidt, the rabbi of Moscow, apparently left Moscow and is not returning. Yeah, you know, let's not get into the subject. It's 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 open. So it's a whole can of worms. I don't even want to touch it. It, it is, but 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 it's better. It's more than what what our friend Beryl Lazar is doing. I mean, Goldschmidt, for whatever reason it is, has left the Soviet, has left Russia. He's left Russia. He doesn't want to be identified with the aggression in the Ukraine and the uh, bombings. He's left. I mean, um, and and I think it's a smart move that he did. You know, he's not a Russian citizen. And and uh, you know, between you and me, listen, listen, let, right let, let me let, let me be let me be like hundred percent clear. The problem with Chabad of Russia is not what they're saying and what they're not saying now. It's a problem that they spent 
last 20 years connecting themselves to this system made themselves intricate part of that system. That is the problem. The problem is not today. The problem started 20, 25 years ago. And when I, when I pointed out, all people would tell me, no, this, who cares? It's, you know, like what's good for the Jews, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. You cannot run a religious organization and still claim a moral authority if your whole organization is rotten through and through like Chabad in Russia. But, but you know what? You know, you may know more about Chabad in Russia, but you know what? If you start investigating Chabad houses in the United States, you're going to find the same thing, except for the ones on college campuses. Um, you're going to find the, that, you know, and we know that. We know that. I mean, um, listen, you listen. Know, we know many. You know, I mean, I, I'm not accusing them all of doing, I think, the Chabad on campus. I happen to be a big supporter of Chabad on campus. I think it's an important project, and I think George Rohr is doing something really important. I mean, and I'm the first person. You know, Chabad people accuse me of being paranoid, and one Chabad person uh, even put down the code for paranoia that I, I'm not paranoid. I'm not a professional Chabad hater. I believe Chabad has done some good things, and I believe the college campus Chabad houses are a positive thing. And that doesn't mean... Uh, that I have to support everything. But Chabad is like um, the fascist organizations. Either you're with us or you're against us. They're not ready for a gray area. They're not ready to parse. So, you know, I can't say that I sign up for Chabad. I don't. But I do think they do some positive things. And the Chabad houses on campus, in my opinion, are positive things. I've witnessed them myself. I've been, you know, and they are positive things. Uh, on the other hand, I think a lot of Chabad, Chabad um, organizations outside of campus are treading on very dangerous territory because a good number of their participants are not Jewish or partially Jewish, which is even worse than not being Jewish or halachically not Jewish. And I think we're, we're dealing in very dangerous territory there. And uh, from a halachic uh, point of view, and Chabad hasn't made any decisions about, about that. And that's why, uh, you know, there, there are certain things going on in Chabad houses because the Chabad know, they know this. They know this and they respond. Their response is by not doing anything. You know, that doesn't mean that they don't do anything. Their response is by not having minyonim and other things because um, they know that many of their participants are not halachic Jews. And they know that uh, if they had minyonim, the women would want to sit with the men, so they don't have minyonim. And this goes on and on and on. And I'm not attacking the shulchan. I'm just saying that they haven't, Lubavitch hasn't had what what I said before. The Freydike Rebbe, the previous Lubavitch Rebbe, had the courage to call a spade a spade. Today, Lubavitchers don't have that courage. And so they, 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 will, not, they will not take a stand and, and say that, well, wait a second, you know, you know, we can't support this. We can't support a, 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 a program where uh, a good portion of the people are not Jewish. Uh, and, and not only that, where a good portion of the program um, deals with, uh, with non-Jews. And, uh, you know, I, I can't do it. You know, uh, I'm not going to go into it. I mean, uh, and, but 
I think there are a lot of problems with Chabad, but I really think that, and this is the last thing I'm going to say, then I'm going to sleep. Um, I think the biggest problem of Chabad is what a friend of mine said, and I am not, uh, I'm not my friend's keeper, but the biggest problem is Chabad needs to go back to basics. Needs to go back to basics. And the basics are, you know, uh, you know, halacha, Hasidic, Hasidic history. Forget about the PR. Forget about the money. Forget about all of the power politics. This is what Hasidus is. And as long as they're not going to do that, which I don't expect them to do it, then Chabad is just some sort of, I don't know what it is. It, it, it's meaningless. And I think it's meaningless to a lot of people except that most people, most Orthodox Jews at least, will not condemn Chabad simply because Chabad is a good motel system. It's an excellent motel system. You can go through, travel through Thailand and uh, Mozambique and who knows where, and you can sleep in Motel 6. What is it? Chabad 9? I don't know what they call it. You know, you can sleep and eat there. And uh, so most modern Orthodox people don't want to cut their ties with this great organization that provides food and uh, board what for the traveler. So the modern Orthodox are not ready to cut their ties with Chabad. The other Hasidim are doing business with Chabad in China and in the Orient, doing big business with them, if I may add. And they too need um, room and board in, in China and Japan because they're all there as salesmen. And the American, secular American Jew doesn't have any idea what Chabad is. And, you know, you can tell them that you believe in, um, you know, in Zoroaster, that Chabad believes in Zoroaster. And they'll say, yeah, it's a good, uh, it's a good thing. So Chabad gets away with murder, essentially, you know, and, uh, because no one's willing to take them on. No one. And I don't mean take them on with Shmoa. I mean, just take them on. I mean, call them out. You know, uh, but no one is willing to do that. I will say this. And again, um, Shimi Deutsch, for all his being... Um, you know, he's disgraced himself, if I may say, you know, by his activities in um, the auction business. Uh, but his original premise was back to basics, was to start a Chabad uh, house or Chabad show that would be back to basics. Unfortunately, it failed. Uh, and that's where we are. It failed. And uh, so there is no Chabad back to basics. But, uh, you know, that's what it's all about in my book, that um, Chabad needs to come back to basics. Stop worshipping um, the Rebbe um, and basics, which means observing the Jewish law, appointing a new Rebbe, starting the process of appointing a new Rebbe. I'm, I know nothing of this is easy. But, you know, without that, then these movements are all doomed for failure, you know, in my opinion, you know. Well, listen, I hope uh, this continues to be a conversation, not preaching. Because people, not preaching. Not preaching. Well, yeah. I, I'm not interested in preaching. I'm just, um, you know, after our long conversation, I just have to say this, that to sum things up, I meant what I said, that, uh, you know, as a summary of all of this, Chabad needs to go back to basics. I mean, period. I mean, uh, there are certain basics, and that is, you know, if it's preaching, it's preaching. But that's that's what Chabad needs. 
I mean, the rest of it is a lot of um, opinion, a lot of, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but, you know, they need to go back to basics. I mean, enough with the oligarchs, enough with the uh, salespeople, basics. You know, well, how can you say enough? Do. You know, the, the, temptation, the temptation is so high for some, some okay. schnook who has no education, comes out of nobody. And just because he's, uh, he's ready to, to do a few favors for a guy with uh, $200, you know, all of a sudden he can, <laughs> he, can, he can provide to his family at the levels which is unthinkable in today's America. So uh, well, who... Who is okay. going to stop that temptation? Nobody. Okay. I didn't say that anyone was. I'm just saying that if if someone came over to me after our conversation here or whatever you want to call it and asked me, so to sum everything up, what what do you what is it that you want? Hello? Yes, yes. All I would say is that Chabad needs to go back to basics. It may not be real, it may be uh, completely uh, a dream. But that's what, to me, that's what it's all about. To me, it, it's it's trying to get Chabad back to basics. You know, whatever that means. But to me, I have certain definitions of what it means. Um, you know, you look at other Hasidic groups. In my opinion, many of them are, are involved in basics. I mean, they have a yeshiva, they have a shul, they have a rebbe. And uh, it's basics. I mean, you know, that's what it is. It's basics, you know. and uh, not, no one's perfect, every Hasidus, because as you just said, there's lots of money running around today, there's lots of power, there's lots of wealthy people, but nevertheless, there's still a basic, what do they call it, a um, threshold. That, and above us, we've crossed the threshold. We've, we, who knows what? I mean, these people believe anything and everything. You know, a Lubavitcher will run around, uh, you know, uh, in a bathing suit, and, he, and he's putting film on with people. They put on film with Goyim. They'll put on film with Mishumadim. They do. They uh, Some Galach. They met some Mishumad who's a Galach. A Mishumad is a priest. They put on film with him. I mean, what are we talking about? This is Chabad. This has anything to do with Chabad. I don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe I'm crazy. You know, And that's not really what I'm interested in. I'm just because what I'm just saying is that Back to basics. That's my theme. That's what, 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 at least to me, that I'm all about. Back to basics. All right. Uh, Shalom Aleichem. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts today. Thank you. Thank you for let's giving me the opportunity. Continue. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it very much. Zai gesund and be well. Let's continue. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Very good.